Welcome to A State of Mind. This is Julian Royce. For today's episode, I'm speaking with Scott Tusa. This is the second conversation that I've had with Scott, and I was really grateful to have him on again. As you guys learned from our first conversation, Scott spent nine years as a Buddhist monk, and he's been deeply immersed in studying Buddhist teachings and practice, and is now leading retreats and works with people one-on-one to help them with their spiritual path. And before I tell you more about this episode, I'm going to play for you some music that I made for Halloween. conversation at hand, me and Scott dive a lot deeper into some topics that came up for us the first time we talked, one of which is this idea of relative truth, of establishing shared common experience that we all have and can all talk about. So while on the one hand, we can look at it, you know, you can never know someone else's reality 100%. That seems pretty clear. You can never stand in someone else's shoes completely. But there are a lot of things that we can agree about and we can talk about. And we talk about this in the context of our world today where people are more and more divided about what is true, what is reality. Different narratives are being put forth. We've all heard phrases like alternative facts and alternative news or fake news. And we're just experiencing this increasing amount of polarization where it seems like people on the left and on the right or libertarians, it's like they're occupying different universes. They're seeing things differently, they're understanding things differently, and it's hard to find shared common ground. And one thing that I argue with Scott, not arguing as in arguing against them, but a point that I make is that I believe that we can create a basis for ethics and for acting morally in the world, and that part of that foundation is recognizing our own suffering, the undeniable fact that we suffer and that other people suffer and that there are things we can do to reduce the amount of suffering we have for ourselves and others. So with that kind of understanding as a basis, we can then develop a moral framework from which to act in the world. And we talk about some difficult and charged topics together, which I really appreciate. I really appreciated Scott's bravery in going there with me. And one of the topics we talked about was race. I mean, obviously, this is a very difficult, complex subject to talk about, and I'm glad we did. I think it's something that uh, should be talked about more in the service of creating a more fair and equal and loving society and world in which to live and for which our children to live. And I think sometimes people feel like you can't talk about race, or if you're a white person, you can't talk about race, or me as a white guy talking about race with Scott, another white guy is problematic, but I I really disagree with that. And um, an interesting point to note here is that I'm actually Jewish, and I believe Scott is Jewish as well. And so while in today's world in America, 2019, we are generally considered white, you know, on the far right, Jewish people actually aren't considered quote unquote white. So there's a lot of complex complexities and nuances there that I think are worth talking about and not avoiding. 
And while there's, there are obviously a lot of things around race in America that I don't know about and that I personally haven't experienced and probably never will experience, I don't think that that is a good reason to not talk about race in this country. In fact, I think not talking about it is part of the problem. And lastly, Scott and I discussed this question of the quote-unquote guru or leader in one's spiritual path. And this has become something of a theme on this podcast due in no small part to all the scandals happening in the Buddhist world and yoga world and spirituality in general. And it is interesting and refreshing to hear Scott's perspective. He's someone who's worked closely with several meditation masters and has a good relationship with them. And for him, it's been a, a positive thing in his life. So we get to hear that perspective from him, for which I appreciated hearing. And so, without further ado, I bring you Scott Tusa, part two. Today with Scott Tusa again, round two of our conversation. Scott, how are you doing? Good, I'm doing great. Thanks for joining me. And you're you're joining me from a would you call it a monastery, a retreat center in in New York State? Yeah, I'm, I'm in upstate New York right now at a place <clears> called Kagyu Tsinsholing, and um, they were kind enough here to uh, uh, basically rent me or allow me to use uh, some of their shrine space. And I've yeah, it's like the third retreat I've hosted here, and. Um, that's great. Primar- primarily like a sitting retreat, like a lot of uh, silent sitting and some Dharma talks at night. Yeah, yeah I was, um, I've been preparing for this conversation a bit and I always have this thing where it's like, I always want more time. You know, I always feel like I'm not ready yet. And then I just have to jump in and do it and not procrastinate. Okay. But I kind of envy you getting to do a lot of meditation practice. And then in my mind, I kind of imagine how like calm and present I could be if I was on retreat <laughs> but maybe it doesn't always work out that way you just have to jump into the fire and see what happens oh man yeah that's yeah I'm it's kind of like this idea, idea of meditation <laughs> yeah to me I got really stirred up this week I mean it's different when I'm leading retreats because uh, I'm not I, I don't just get a chance to practice I'm sort of watching right. the energy of the students you know uh, making sure that <clears throat> it's safe and also uh, uh, the structures there for them everything's you know, happening well and, and, and giving them the support for their practice. But, um, what was I going to say, but yeah, it, particularly this retreat when I'm sitting, a lot of stuff's coming up. So no, I don't feel ex- especially calm, but I appreciate your <laughs> fan- fantasy, fan- what is it, fantasy about me. fantasy. <laughs> I think that's nice to share with people. Cause I know I'm not alone in this. It's like you, we think sometimes people are thinking meditation will solve all your problems and it, it won't. Totally. The more I practice Buddhism, the more I, I, I like actually, the fact, I mean, it's okay to be calm and calmness has a use and it has mm. a purpose and it's, it, again, it's useful, but, but also like the more I appreciate that meditation is there to actually really stir up uh, things as well. So we can start to see clearly in, into what is actually, what's going on here. Like right. what is, it gives you a chance to work, work through underlying things. Totally. I mean, to me, it's just really embedded in the Buddha's first noble truth of, of knowing Dukkha and, and knowing or knowing dissatisfaction or suffering and, to me, the whole practice is for drawing that out, not to dwell in it, but to see what its causes are and then to be able mm. to actually eliminate them uh, effectively as opposed to just kind of staying in a constant 
uh, avoidant state of calmness. And I'm Absolutely. not saying all calmness is avoidant, but it can be. Yeah, no, it's a great point. And uh, yeah. kind of paradoxically or ironically, when I really face the truth of suffering and like just finally get to a point where like life has suffering in it and let's face that and be with it, that can lead to less suffering. But when you're totally. avoiding it, when you're trying to get away from it, that somehow keeps it, makes it worse or keeps it going. Um, so we are going to talk about yeah. um, some different topics today. One of them is around this idea of like relative truth or truth that we share with other people, things that we have in common. Um, and in the world today with politics, like it's, it's become such a shit show, you know, part of my language, but <laughs> <laughs> we are, we no longer have a dominant narrative to explain the world. We have many different ideas and stories about what's going on and, Mm. there's no longer a kind of mainstream media that's telling a story that we're all more or less agreeing with. Like there's yeah, a yeah. collapse of a cultural narrative. And when I listen to Donald Trump or more right-wing sources, I start to enter a different kind of universe than when I read the New York times and talk to my more liberal friends and I'm in a different universe. And it's, 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 it's just hard to, to bridge these worlds. And I, I guess I, part of the reason I reached out to you was like, does Buddhist philosophy and teachings and meditation, um, and we can go beyond, we don't have to just stay with Buddhism, but I think there's some, it can offer some tools maybe or insights around this. What is this, you know, establishing truth. And I think, I think one place that I can start to think about this is there's levels of reality. For example, right now I'm sitting and I'm looking at a computer and it's on a table. And so if I want to communicate to someone, I say, there's a table here in this room and I'm sitting at this table. But if we go to the level of atoms and we just look at like the molecular structure and the atoms moving around, there is no table. There's collections of atoms moving around. And so on that level of reality, a table doesn't exist. And it doesn't mean that the table isn't real, but there's, and this is kind of how I've started to think about things a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and this is a big topic. Um, you know, I, I don't know if I'm, I'm the best <laughs> guest to, to really go into this in detail because, I mean, a lot of Buddhist philosophy um, you know, just tons of, of literature and tons of commentaries um, talk about this. I, I, I think when it comes to ultimate truth, I feel like most Buddhist lineages have less to debate and it's really relative truth that they're mm. often debating, but, you know, cross lineage or scholar to scholar or practitioner to practitioner because relative truth is in a way, it's way more complex than ultimate truth. Mm. Uh, meaning, break, that, break that down for our listeners a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe I should preface it with um, uh, Buddhism, one sort of system of understanding. And, and again, really, I think putting it this way uh, takes it out of the realm of belief in the sense that like you could look at something from the Buddhist path as, yes, they're putting out some kind of belief. But to me, really, it's just uh, some kind of structure or languaging around how to start to work with our own reality. Right. Um, even the teachings on karma are like that. They're 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 relative teachings, meaning they're um, uh, what do you call it? They're not definitive. They're 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 interpretive, uh, depending on the school you ask or the lineage you ask. Meaning, like karma is a relative phenomena. It, it for for a being who transcends uh, samsaric existence or cyclic existence, they don't mm. experience karma anymore. So, if it was ultimate, they wouldn't be able to do that. Um, but on the relative level, they speak about it as a way to work with 
one's own life, one's own path. And it's, so it's not really put forth as a belief system. So I'm using karma, which is often one of the more controversial points uh, in modern Buddhism. I, I don't understand why, but anyways. No, I think that's a great, that's a great uh, point to bring in. Yeah, and I love to talk about karma because I think a lot of people get stuck in, um, I call it the My Name is Earl version of karma. I don't My know Name is Earl? Seen, what have is you that? ever seen that show before? <laughs> oh, it's the, uh, I don't know, it's a... <laughs> Uh, it's, it was like an FX TV show in the early 2000s, I think. And um, he talks a lot about karma. He, he's like playing a, a redneck who talk, who's really into karma. But it's like <laughs> a very simplistic version of, of what karma means. Hmm. Um, th- this kind of almost like a law, like, like a Ten Commandment. And, and I don't think at all that's how we kind of look at it in Buddhism. I mean, sure, we talk about mining well, so karma and all that. The word karma... I th- Correct me if I'm wrong. Literally means cause and effect in Tibetan. It, it, it I mean, it literally means well, karma. The Sanskrit like action, action. Like it, yeah. Okay. So it's sort That's of great. like. But anyways, I don't want to get bogged down here because I was just using it as an analogy. Well, I want to. Um, I want to. I want to dig into this a little bit because you just said a lot of things. But one of the things is that if someone is really realized and stable and ultimate truth, they've transcended karma. So if in Buddhism we would call that like a Buddha, like a Buddha is someone who is somehow transcended this these actions or these causes and conditions that are affecting us but part of what i wanted to bring into this conversation is i think a lot of people um the idea of transcending good and evil for example has become very popular and so a lot of people i think today are like oh i don't really believe in good and evil there's no ultimate good or evil you know everything's relative and it's very easy to say that and it's easy to think that but i think people are are just understanding that on this like kind of superficial conceptual level they haven't really done the work and the analysis and the the insight you know however you do it It could be it could just be through philosophy it doesn't have to be through a buddhist path but to really understand what they're talking about i think someone like nietzsche for example was a very deep thinker and when he talked about that he was coming from a, a deeper place and so one way that i've started to think about this is that if you've really transcended good and evil then your actions and the effects that you have on the in the world will actually be coming from a greater place of wholeness and kind of ultimate goodness. Because in the Buddhist tradition, like yeah. this idea of Buddha nature, that ultimate reality is actually something good. It's not exactly. something it's not something neutral. It's not something arbitrary. And so if you believe or think that you've transcended good and evil, but you're going around and all of your actions are enacting this relative, I like this, I don't like that, um, and people are being hurt by your actions, you definitely have not transcended good and evil. You're just eluding yourself. Totally. Yeah. And, and, and I think, I mean, this is a really nuanced point to understand. It's, it's not an easy thing to understand of how we would transcend um, sort of the personalization of, of self and other and phenomena. And at the same time, it does like compassion and action arises out of that. Right. That's a key point. I think it's lost in translation so much. Totally. It's lost in translation. I think because we kind of, you know, we're still baking here in the West. Um, this came up in our kind of pre, pre, uh, interview conversation, you know, we're still cooking and, 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 and I think a lot of us, uh, need to step back a little bit and realize we're still cooking, meaning, you know, these things are not, um, they're not easy to understand, let alone to experience. And, And so I just like the idea of it's just a continuing working hypothesis and there is a lineage, uh, and people to engage with who do somewhat have some experience and know what they're talking about. And it's not that we have to blindly believe them. It's just that we can sort of uh, uh, use them as mentors 
respectfully to for our own process of understanding this and not landing in the kind of oh i think i know kind of territory um, right because you're, you're someone part of the reason why you know i reach out to you and have you on here you're someone who is uh kind of embedded in a tradition like you have a real relationship with a, a teacher and with a lineage and you're maybe like open to exploring new ways but you're also rooted in this ancient tradition so you kind of Versus someone who is just trying to figure everything out on their own, for example. I think that's part of what you're speaking to. Yeah, and or or, or I think um, what I'm speaking to too is um, uh, throwing the boat out too quickly, and and sort of what happens as like a hidden colonization mentality, where people, uh, you know, pick and choose what they like from a from a lineage without actually digesting the entire holistic package, and then they're just like, oh, and this is what's right for us. And, I just don't even think we know it all uh, yet. I mean, <laughs> this took hundreds of years uh, to come from, in, you know, Buddhism took hundreds of years to come from India to Tibet. And then the Tibetans respect their Indian, the Indians so much, like in that regard, the Indian Buddhists, uh, uh, sort of the, their elders, almost to a fault, like in a sense, like uh, I would, maybe that's a little extreme, not to a fault, but, you know, they just respect them so much. And I think, there has to be room for that. Otherwise the genuine convergence of something doesn't happen because it just becomes this, this individualized commodified hedonistic late stage capitalist colonization mentality mm -hmm. around it where it's like, Oh, now it's mine. And I know better than these Tibetans, you know, but we actually didn't even understand what they were saying in the first place. Yeah. You know no, that's I mean? interesting. I mean, I think it's a messy process if we're talking about Buddhism coming here or just people in this culture developing paths to meditation and, uh, but there's, I mean, there is a way in which we need to make things our own and adopt Definitely. to the circumstances we live in. So it's, it's a complex picture. And really I think, complex. I think, I think some of the idealization of past teachers, you said to a, you know, almost to a fault, it's like, it's just something that we can't sustain today. Like there's no living teacher. We know too much about people. <laughs> there's too much documentation and social media, and it's hard to have any living teacher who can live up to these idealized visions we have and i think we need to embrace our humanity a little more with it and totally yeah yeah i think i mean it's definitely it's moving in a more humanistic direction it's not a new thing there was humanist movements of buddhism in china mm. and other places so it's not that new i mean we often think we're creating new things we're just usually recycling things well, that's that's a good point too. <laughs> uh, but but what i do want to say is you're correct and and i agree with you that um, I'm not saying either or here, like I'm not saying, you know, I, like you said, I'm kind of a lineage based Buddhist, but also really trying to bridge this for myself and, mm -hmm. and, and, and those I teach in, in the modern world as modern, you know, in, in my case, a modern uh, North American. So, um, you know, who, with European bodied, you know, where my ancestors are not from here originally, obviously. So, so, um, yeah, it's, it's really tricky. And I think it's not that, uh, we have to blindly by default follow someone else's perspective or cultural perspective or any of that. It's just some, it's just the respect due of, of digesting something uh, properly um, in relation to someone and, and, and not jumping too quickly on the idea that we've landed somewhere where mm. we know, but the problem is we have to go off something. We can't yeah. just do nothing, but I think it's the humility um, not to, not to jump to our opinions and, and, feelings and quotes so quickly mm. about things and really to to do them justice by being a little bit generous and then because i know if you know 20 years ago when i started my studies uh in buddhism 
yeah, there, there's just no way I could have any capacity to have the relationship I do with it now. It's mm. just, it just literally couldn't happen. Yeah. And I think giving ourselves that room and space is not only a kind thing to, it's not only a kind thing to do for these traditions so they can survive and help continue to help human beings and other beings, but it's kind to ourselves. You know, it's being kind to our patterns and kind to our, you know, emotions and habit patterns. But I think, um, mm. you know, to me, I look at a lineage as a living, breathing community mm. um, that, that's moving through time. And, and what Absolutely. is the purpose? The purpose of a lineage is to benefit people. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and if it ceases to do that, like, what's the point, you know? Yeah. No, those are great points. I think it is a living, breathing thing. And it's, it's almost like a, a distillation of culture. I mean, what is culture? What separates humans from other animals to a large degree is culture. We are born into a world where we learn an incredible amount and we stand on the shoulders of giants. You know, we stand on the, all our ancestors. And so part of what I was thinking about with, with this conversation is like people today are, are questioning reality more and more in all kinds of ways that we can talk about. And I think that's a good thing, but there's also a cost. I mean, there's part of how progress happens is you build on the work of people before you. Yeah. And if you question everything and you have to go back and redo it all yourself, well, you don't have enough time, <laughs> first of all, <laughs> energy. So we have to kind of take things on some amount of faith. And with science, you know, we should be able to reproduce the results of experiments from the past. And it's good to look at that. But, um, you know, the work that Newton did, for example, then Einstein could build on that and so forth and so on. And um, mm-hmm. I don't know, I've just, I've been, <laughs> I've just had so many conversations with so many people where they're questioning things like, I, I've met people who, who say they literally believe the world is flat. And I try to get to understand that. It's, I don't know where they're going with it, but <laughs> we, we're just, we live in a world today where people are, yeah, everyone's free to believe whatever you want. And I guess well, the truth is some, we, uh, yeah. the tr- the tr- we can get in a relative ultimate, we can loop back around to what you know, yeah. your original question was, but um, uh, yeah, we, we all have our own truth to a certain extent, which doesn't mean every truth is valid. I mean, that's, the, that's right. the problem now is like, there's an element of thinking these days where it's like, my truth is valid. No, no, no. Your truth is your projection of all your habit patterns that you've accumulated. That doesn't mean it's the <clears> truth, <throat> like with a capital T. It's just, it's just some experience you're having that will change right. uh, from a Buddhist perspective. Um, one thing I did want to say before we go more into the, the, the relative ultimate is, um, shoot, now I'm forgetting. But anyways, it was something you were just touching on. Well, I actually want to walk back something I just said. I just said something like everyone's free to believe what they want. And I actually don't think that's true. I think most of our beliefs are kind of programs that we've been given and we either adopt them or not. But it's ah, like Sam, Sam, Sam Harris has done a really great job of deconstructing free will. And yeah, yeah, yeah. it's really impacted me a lot. And it's like, if I, you know, if I go to a restaurant and get a menu, I have this idea that I have the free will to choose to eat whatever I want. But if I look at but what's actually happening, the reality is I've been given information about nutrition. I have past experiences of what I liked in the past. Some of the things I liked in the past are because, you know, my parents really liked it or my friend really liked mm-hmm. it. So it's at what point is my free will there? It's all these different conditionings that have happened that lead me to make a choice. Totally, totally. And then we imagine, let me tell a story that it's our free will, but it, it really isn't. Yeah, this this question comes up a lot in Buddhism. Uh, what is free will, and and what does it mean when when we're living a conditioned existence? I mean, it goes back a little bit to our other conversation, where where you know we were talking about um, whether something's evolving or de-evolving. But maybe that's like a false dichotomy when it's actually just circular and it's just mm. repeating or, or moving kind of around in in a nonlinear fashion. 
but the habits are just repeating themselves. And I think this is a lot how Buddhists think of it, because underlying um, our nature, it, Buddhists believe that that there's Buddha nature, which is a quality of awakened, like the awakened quality is there. <clears throat> Different schools describe it differently. Some as a potential, some as an actuality that we just simply need to uncover. But that Buddha nature is not a soul. It's not a personality. It's not an identity. It's just fully integrated with the nature of how things are, hmm. which are nothing whatsoever uh, in the sense of like not fixed, not independent, not permanent, not singular. Uh, but everything's appearing and arising. So there's not a void either. And this is how we start to describe ultimate truth. Um, but what it's essentially saying with Buddha nature teachings is like, we're already part of ultimate truth. Right. It's just, we've become a little bit confused about that. And we we're, we've put all these, and that's where in our habit patterns spin in the relative world, based on that confusion of not being connected to that ultimate truth uh, mm -hmm. with, with inside our, our own experience. Um, I, I remembered what I was going to say before, but then I forgot again when you said what you're going to say. But uh, maybe it'll come back. I, I don't know. Um, yeah, I think that's um, just to go down, share some of my thoughts around this idea of ultimate truth and Buddha nature. I think um, yeah, I really appreciate this, the teachings in Buddhism that you know your ultimate nature, Buddha nature, is already there, and you're just discovering it. You know, there's mm -hmm. like the analogy of like the sun is already perfectly there; it's shining in all directions, and it's covered up by clouds, and so you have to clear away the clouds or cleaning a mirror you know it could be another analogy the mirror in its intrinsic quality is already purely reflective uh, but it might have some dirt that's gone on it whatever all these analogies but i think that for sure there is evolution there is development there's advancement maybe development's a better word like with technology our technology and our science is clearly developing and i i wonder if some of these teachings, like they're all, I kind of think about them all as uh, skillful means. Like all the teachings, yeah. all the practices are called, what are called skillful means. They're all methods to help us to awaken more, to have more compassion, to have more insight, to have more wisdom. And so I think that those kinds of analogies, those kinds of teachings are an ultimate truth. They're also skillful means. And I think the, it might be that through having teachings like that, having that belief and then putting those practices into it, you, you do touch into your Buddha nature and start to develop it more, but there is a development that still needs to happen where you're bringing it out in the world. And there's a lot of causes and conditions that are supporting that development. It's not like, you know, it's not like it's just there and you're just going to stumble onto it one day. There, there's some effort that's needed and some, some practice that's needed around it. Definitely. Yeah. And I think that's where this, this conversation on relative ultimate truth is nuanced because it's also not saying like a lot of people, when they hear emptiness for the first time, uh, especially like more coming from a postmodern, mostly if it's like a hidden postmodern, a mentality um they think it's like making everything relative or like sort of you know there can be this argument that oh then then it's just saying like everything's kind of uh, there's no truth or whatever or there's no good and bad and so we can do whatever we want that's not what it's saying at all as you pointed out earlier mm -hmm. uh, but it's also saying you know meaning like um there is embedded in buddha nature is an innate compassion from from some perspectives mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and but that's not the type of like dualistic compassion we normally are referencing in the world. So it's really hard to understand what compassion looks like as an in a non-dualistic form, or we could even say like a non-conceptual form. Mm. Uh, but the real point I wanted to make, uh, uh, just just stepping back for a moment, is um, mm, 
back up for a second. What were you just uh, just because I'm maybe this idea of development that we're we need to engage. Oh, with, I remember with these things say, yeah. in order to, to develop these qualities. No, the skillful means. Um, oh, skillful means, yeah. Because because this is really important. It, it's it's the relative reality. Like even though relative reality changes and we can't find some ultimate point where we say oh this is it or here it is or this is the answer to everything to every problem uh because everything's shifting and moving all the time and made of many conditions and it's impermanent but still there is things that bring about like you were saying that kind of help bring about or help us to recognize that buddha nature or Mm. just in a secular uh form there is things that are more harmful and helpful depending yeah, on their absolutely. cultural context. and That's a good way to look at it and talk about it. Yeah, and so I, that's what I meant. It's like Buddhism is not at all saying like, oh, just do whatever the hell you want. Like, not at all. It's actually the opposite. Actually, it becomes, we become more cautious about our conduct. Mm. More like, uh, because the wisdom aspect is helping us to navigate in the world better, not just to check out of the world. Right. And, and, and I think, but a lot of people assume they know what that conduct should look like from their political social perspective when I think that is a leap. Yeah. You know, uh, in, in the mm-hmm. sense, like we really have no, Oh, that's what I want to say. I wanted to talk about faith. <laughs> <laughs> this can click. That's what I want to say five minutes ago. This can click back in. Um, we really have no idea we're, we're actually, you know, what I find the hubris of our time is a lot of us just don't even realize how much on we're, we're not doing what's the word. We do very little not based on faith. Mm. I, I talk about this yeah. a lot these days, about belief and faith, and maybe those are two different things, but I'll just use them interchangeably right now. Um, I'll, I'll use belief now. Um, just the idea that we're going to wake up the next morning and we're going to do this and this and this and eat this and this and this or go to work or whatever is a belief. Right. It, 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 there's, <laughs> there, there's no truth to that. In this, I mean, it's very likely, right? I mean, you could say... <laughs> It's a logical, you know, it's a logical conclusion that that'll happen. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Imagine waking up and you turn on your phone and it, it doesn't turn on. But you have believed that it was going to turn on. You get really angry, irritated, or your car doesn't start. And you're like, we take all these things for granted. And then when something doesn't work, we get freaked out. Exactly. And okay. so this is the predicament. This is actually a samsaric predicament from a Buddhist perspective. That mm-hmm. actually as, as being stuck in duality or, or dualistic thinking, uh, and habitual thinking, conditioned existence, all these ways we could describe the samsaric existence, there's no choice but to believe. We, we literally have no choice. Mm, otherwise, so you my, can't do anything. Yeah, you would be in, there would, you'd be in that. Nothing would move or happen. Mm. And so from my perspective, at least we should try to align ourselves with beliefs that are going to bring about more wisdom, loving kindness, and compassion. Right. And, you know, and, and, and I think the Buddhist path does offer that. You know, and that doesn't, so it's a really tricky thing where it's like, once you realize you're believing all the time, then I do think it gives you a little bit more, I wouldn't quite go to free will, but I would say it does give you more agency because mm-hmm. then you, you realize, oh, wow, like, okay, well then what beliefs are going to help me to be a happier person, a more constructive person in society, et cetera, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I like how we're touching on this idea of like, what's helpful. And as I work as a therapist, that becomes more and more a guiding question for me rather than what is true is is an important question too, but what is helpful? And then I think there's an important connection between them. They're not two different things. I think that at least to some degree, if something is true, it will be more efficacious in the world. Mm. And maybe that's not always completely true. 
and maybe there's exceptions, but generally speaking, like, you know, if we develop some science or technology that's that's more true, it's going to have greater effects. Like, look at the atom bomb, for example. It's like a, something I think about sometimes. Like, if, yeah, if the physics, if the physics wasn't true, then the atom bomb wouldn't work, and clearly, it clearly works. Yeah, on a relative but, level. But the and same thing, maybe with our happiness. Like, if something, you know, nutrition. Like, maybe it's not ult- You know, who knows ultimately? But is this helpful or not? Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Looping back, do you want to loop back to what I relative ultimate? Uh, sure. Yeah. A little bit, because I, I did want to preface it with I was trying to preface it, and then and then we kind of I went into the karma direction, and that took us in another direction, which is fine. But um, I was I wasn't really I didn't mean to talk about karma specifically. I just was using it as an analogy earlier to represent a system that's set up within Buddhism to describe um, uh, something in reality that's happening. So karma is a little bit more looked at as grab like gravity in Buddhism. Mm. It's just right. a, it's a causal function in nature. Uh, it's just something we can't see, which is like gravity. So most people accept that if you step off of a building, you're going to fall down. They don't accept that you're going to fall up. Right. Well, that's so, a good analogy because, Karma and gravity are both things that when you really look into them more deeply, there there's kind of mystery there. You know, it's hard to, we can't really, from my, what I've understood of physics, we don't have a coherent, complete explanation of gravity. And totally. It's true of karma too. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's the same with karma. It's, it's, it's a hidden phenomena. That's what we mm-hmm. literally call it in Buddhism. It's an it's a extremely hidden phenomena. And, and, but it's, you know, it's, it's not unlike gravity in the sense, except for like a lot of us don't accept karma. Uh, like I said, mostly I think based off like a misunderstanding of maybe what it is, but it's just a natural law from a Buddhist perspective. And my main point was that it's a system that was set up to understand natural law, just as gravity is a system that's set up to make sure we don't die prematurely, <laughs> right? <laughs> like if you think about it, the gravity is set up like that. And then of course it's set up to understand physics and understand flight and other kinds of phenomena that we've yeah. kind of invented. I like uh, the gravity. I, I studied with this one on retreat with uh, this teacher named Reggie Ray. And he yeah. talked about gravity as the spiritual force bringing us back to earth and how we need to be embodied and connected with earth and <laughs> kind of criticizing spiritual approaches that are all about transcendence or all about getting away instead mm. of being more grounded. And it also makes me think of like, we're talking about relative and ultimate truth as if they're two different things. But of course the Buddhist teachings, you know, eventually get to the point of they're the, you know, they're two sides of the same coin or they're, you know, deeply connected. If if something is relatively true, it also is ultimately true in some ways. I don't know how you want to talk about that. It's kind of tricky. Yeah, yeah. And just to finish kind of my introduction on, on relative and ultimate. So relative and ultimate is is a it's a system set up within Buddhism so we can have some language to describe and start to understand reality. Mm. Right? The nature of reality. Ultimately for a Buddhist or a person who wants to attain awakening, that has to happen in experience meaning that has to be embodied in one's realization through bringing it into one's practice and meditation and conduct. So, um, but, um, but yeah, you're correct. I mean, my friend, um, <laughs> my friend, Elizabeth, uh, Mattis Namgyal, who's oh, yeah. a great Buddhist teacher. Um, she often says, um, uh, when it comes to relative and ultimate truth, they're, they're actually not two and they're not true. <laughs> <laughs> ultimately I'm trying to but, pull the rug out from underneath us a little bit <laughs> yeah and, and i think to me that just also points that they're a system of understanding so i just want to preface mm, it with that because nice. i i, I yeah. you know trying to preface this in, in like there, it's a system of inquiry not a system of belief ultimately mm. um 
So relative, as, as I think I said briefly on the last call, just to sum it up, it's really what appears to us um, mm. on an individual level, on a collective level, uh, all, all of that, right? Uh, it's what appears as, as a, in, the phys, in the, what, we, what appears to us as physical. It's what appears to us as non-physical, like thoughts, mm. uh, images, things like that. And then, um, uh, yeah, so that would be the relative. And then the ultimate is, is how things actually are. So not just how they appear, but how they exist or how, how mm. they actually are. And from an ultimate perspective, you know, we use the language, uh, in the, in, especially in the, in the middle way teachings that of the Buddha, um, that nothing, nothing exists independently, uh, uh, singular in a singular way or, or in a permanent way. And, and this, this is the language we use to describe something that's not something, but it's also not nothing. Nice. Yeah. And, and so ultimate is pointing at something beyond something or nothing. Mm. And, and, and for us, it, it, when we hear that, we're just like, oh, that sounds uh, like a riddle or something. It's not a riddle. It's just, it's just, it goes beyond concept. Mm. So we, so, so we have to, you know, we try to understand it through concepts, but really we're just pointing at the moon. You know, we're not yeah. uh, getting at it. But what I wanted to say is we practice more, like you said, the relative and the ultimate cease to be so divided mm. in the sense that we start to experience more indivisibility. Mm. And so I think the, the realization of emptiness is more like a, a sense of indivisibility, mm. uh, meaning things become uh, less and less dual and more indivisible as an experience. And that relates mm. to everything, self to self, self to other. And so they sometimes call it selflessness or not self or emptiness, but it's really just talking about that, that falling away of, of, of the dreamlike illusion that things are separate and things are independent. Mm. Yeah. Nice. I think maybe another way we could talk about it is if you have an experience or insight into a more ultimate truth, just subjectively, you're, you're no longer caught or captured or identified with mood, thoughts, feelings, beliefs, but those things can still exist. So you still have access to them. So it's, you can engage, like I'm someone who, you know, has done a decent amount of study and you, know, you study all these concepts eventually to try to transcend them. But then when you, if you, if you are able to transcend them, it's not like all the concepts like are put in the trash can and deleted. It's like you still have access to them. They're still there. Mm. And um, I think that kind of process, a lot of people in the world today don't quite get. They just want to jump to the ultimate or they just want to say, oh, you know, nothing's really good or bad or everything's empty or but they haven't like worked through some of these systems that were in place to like really get there in a deeper way. Yeah. Does that make sense? Totally. And, and I think this is just a natural str struggle because right now we're selling, we're, we're, we're um, uh, unconsciously, most of us separating relative and ultimate truth. And, and yet we have this longing <laughs> from our deep nature to, to unify them. Yeah. And, and we just don't know how. So then we try to unify them in lots of different ways usually ways that just increase our, our confusion and suffering. Um, I think it was Padampa Sangye, so I may, it may not be his quote. He was a, uh, uh, what century was he? Maybe it's like 11th, 12th century Indian master, maybe earlier. He, he said, um, sentient beings uh, run towards suffering and run away from happiness. <laughs> I thought, wow, that sounds a lot like my life. <laughs> I can relate to that, yeah. Yeah, we just follow our impulses. And, and, and he wasn't like day. saying that as a judgment. Right. Yeah, totally. He wasn't saying that as a judgment. He was just saying that as an observation uh, of what the dualistic mind does. And, and right. so in Buddhism, we start to understand it as a, as a, 
you know, with the analogy of more like an illness. And so it's not personal. It's not like you're bad because you're experiencing confusion and duality. It's just, it's just, a con- it's literally that it's a confusion. That's not personal. It's just a mm. conditioned habit pattern that we've gotten so used to. It's just like a dream that seems so real. And we woke up in the morning and we're just having a hard time reconciling it. What it was a dream, mm. you know? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's another great, great quote that came to my mind when you were saying that it, it's, I think it's from the, the way of the Bodhisattva where it says, uh, something like normal sentient beings work tirelessly for their own happiness or Buddhas work for the benefit of others. Mm. Like look at the difference between them. Yeah, yeah. It's this idea that we're always trying to go after our own happiness, but we often create the opposite result. I went to Saul teacher and he's, he started every talk he gave with that. He's like, arouse compassion because everyone's trying to be happy, but they're constantly creating the opposite result for themselves from what they want. <laughs> totally. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think in, in the bridge, cause we we're talking about the bridge in the beginning, the bridge to those kind of quotes for us, cause those are a little bit pre-modern, uh, uh, ways of speaking. The bridge for us is sort of like, that's also not personal. Like that doesn't mean you're a bad person. Cause the, you know, it, it's just for their, their, <clears throat> those kinds of teachers would say those things in order to arouse um, clarity within us, not self-judgment or self Yeah, no, that's a great point. Cause we, we tend to blame ourselves or judge ourselves so harshly. I think a lot of people reject some of the, the, the kind of more pre-modern forms of Buddhism because they, they, they sound judgy to them. But actually my challenge would be like, who's being judgy here? Meaning mm-hmm. like, maybe it's just your perception that you, you know, you're sensing it as an attack on you, on you. Yeah. But actually, they don't mean that at all, you know? Right. That's definitely my experience early on in Buddhism. I couldn't even practice Lojong or mind training teaching because it just would trigger my low self-esteem the whole time. Right. And then I finally realized later on, until I healed that somewhat, uh, low self-confidence, whatever, um, low self-worth, you know, it's impossible to to gauge them accurately because our lens is so skewed. Right. So part of it is just, just taking responsibility of like, Oh, like maybe my lens is a little skewed and that's okay. Like I'm just welcoming anyone listening to this podcast. My lens is totally skewed all the time. You know, (laughs) it's, I don't know if it ever gets better. It just sort of changes like hang out. Like we can hang out. It's like, meaning like you're welcome in my club. I want to be welcome in your club. It's not like a, Mm. it doesn't have to diminish or demean us as a person to recognize we have shortcomings, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It's just human. It's just where we are. Yeah. And I think there has to be community around that of like, and, and, and I think there can be community around traditional lineage around that, but it's hard because the language seems very harsh sometimes. And I, and I acknowledge, I like to acknowledge that for people because some people have a hard time with that or it goes the other direction where they're just like, they go straight into belief and, and, and almost being a sycophant with this kind of stuff and, and, you know, like right. tighten up the, the hatches and, all the things take aim at them, but they're, you know, pretending to be this great Buddhist when actually they're just suffering from a lot of low self-esteem the whole time. Mm. You know, so I don't know. And that's a big judgment on my part, but I see it kind of the extreme of rejection or like accepting and then diminishing ourselves in the middle of that acceptance. Yeah. You know yeah. What I mean, got to find a healthy sense of pride and who we are and where we are. And you kind work, of, said, you kind of said it earlier. Yeah. We have to, <laughs> we do have to trust our own experience to a certain extent though that's not really a Buddhist statement 
<laughs> not like an accurate one, but, but you know, we, we have no choice. Like we have to have some confidence in what we're doing at the level we're at. And then yeah. we have to also be skeptical of our, of our, of our mind a little bit of our thoughts and emotions. a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one, if we're talking about, you know, this big question, what is true and you can doubt everything and you can think what you want, or at least you can think that you can think what you want. But like, if you kind of just try to get down to the basics, there's, you know, no one can deny the truth of suffering and things that will increase that suffering and then some sense of well-being and things that could hopefully increase that well-being. I mean, I think that's kind of a mm. bedrock from which you can then build ethics, morality, you know, an examined life, practice. It's just this, this, this basic uh, fact of suffering that no one can deny. Totally. I think that was a great way to put it. And, and I was just thinking uh, just, just at the end of your statement there. And this is the predicament we're in because people are rejecting now the, the traditional, on, on mass levels, are rejecting, for, for some, for good reason, right? Uh, the traditional forms of where, where, where our ethics, like we're given a teaching on ethics. Right. Um, and, then we're lo- and then it's becoming a little bit chaotic or a lot chaotic because then the idea of what leads to suffering or happiness becomes more and more diffused or more and more yeah. diffuse is the right word, like more and more uh, like mysterious. And then, and then uh, he like kind of in America, at least I feel it's been replaced with, with hedonistic kind of like a hedonistic nihilistic culture. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's well said. Um, to kind of bring the contemporary political stuff into the conversation a little bit more, it's like there's, there's these ideologies the left and the right are becoming more polarized and more separated. And there's this ideology on the left, on the far left of um, kind of blaming everything on white European colonialism or racism or these big isms. And I think that that, that has like, these are problems that we need to address and we need to talk about, we need to heal as a society. There's also a way in which like the traditional Buddhist teachings really put the onus more on the, on the individual, like look at your life and look at your suffering and how can you, work through this. And um, so there's just this kind of victim mentality that can happen, even though that can be true historically, it can be used to kind of reject some of these basic practices or basic like morality or ethics from the past um, in a way that I think is really problematic. Does that make sense? Like I've I've met people, I've met people who they're like, I really want to meditate, but I'm not going to go to that group because it's almost all white people. And I'm a person of color and I feel uncomfortable there. And I, I get where they're coming from, but it's also like, you know, I live in a town that is 85% white. So any group you go to in this town will more, you know, be somewhere around 80 to 90% white, just based on the averages. So if you yeah, use totally. that as an excuse to like, not engage or to, to not do things that would actually be helpful for you, then you're the one that ends up suffering more. Yeah, it's a really tricky one, too. Because it's tricky. I mean, it's tricky to talk about. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's dangerous to talk about nowadays. Um, dangerous. But- <laughs> <laughs> it is dangerous to talk about. But I well, want to talk yeah. about it. I want to try to bring some of this... I don't mind that danger because to me, it's sort of like, I'm just a human being trying to learn and I have a lot of things to learn. And I have a lot of things that, you know, this just, I just have my experience, you know, in the kind of intersectional Olympics, mostly just as like a, you know, straight white guy. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm all ears a lot of the time just to learn other people's experience. And and that's helped me actually in certain ways, I think in my life, uh, just, just to, a little bit more open but one way you know just on the on what you're just saying i think on a relative level um uh yeah i i understand that like i have friends of color who have who have told me that and 
and, and, and I get it when, when they actually explain their experience more to me because, because I don't have that embodied experience, right? Yeah. Uh, it's not, my, my body comes off as a big white guy. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and so I, I understand their experience and yet I hear your point embedded in it. So I don't, you know, yeah, I, that. I agree. Cool. I mean, I, I, I've had a lot of conversations where, and I understand and it's uh, complex issues. I guess my, my bigger point, it's hard to articulate. It's just kind of like we're all here and we all are doing the best we can do and we could all probably do better. And I'm just really concerned and suspicious that there's ideologies at play that are leading us in a, in bad directions that are making some of these problems worse. That, totally, totally. And I'm, I'm scared about that. Yeah, I agree. I agree with you on that. And, and I, what I was going to say on that topic, uh, um, uh, before a few minutes ago was, um, yeah, I, I think this is, this is embedded in a larger idea uh, that we think we know what's going to change something or make something better. Like we were talking about hap- like uh, reducing suffering. From a Buddhist perspective, we can not only reduce it, we can eliminate it. But I want to be clear that Buddhism is for both. Buddhism wants to reduce and See, that's a, that's a huge statement, that we can eliminate suffering. And if you're, <laughs> if you're very married, if you're really embedded in this ideology, really concerned about these societal problems, racism, etc., then you can never accept that because you, can, you don't believe that society will ever be able to be cleansed of these big injustices. And I think it's, tr- but it's true that on a personal individual level, you can reduce and theoretically eliminate suffering for yourself. And you can still work on these bigger issues that are affecting the culture and society. So exactly. I think they and can that, both be true. Yeah, they can both be true. And I think that's where the more action oriented uh, aspect of Buddhism comes out where it's like, the value ultimately is really in, like you said, like on an individual level, definitely we can eliminate our suffering. Um, See, that's a hell of a statement. Yeah. And with that, um, the, the whole impetus for doing that from a, from a, a Mayana perspective is to help others. Right. So it's like embedded within that whole training and wish is that you become a more useful, skillful person to then help reduce the suffering of others. So it's like embedded in it, you could, you could say is a little bit of a, a there is a social element, uh, not in the sense how we would think of it now, because so, social societies are always changing. So it's like, you could see like, what kind of amazing wisdom do we have to develop to be able to develop enough, you know, the skills coming from that wisdom, uh, uh, we would say here, the wisdom knowing the nature of reality in, in order to ad- adapt to wherever society moves. This is why I think the Buddha, all he could do is respond to the society he was living in at the time. And he did respond to it uh, in ways that, that would are kind of radical, like um, uh, challenging uh, caste norms, right. uh, challenging whether, whether women could be ordained uh, into the renunciate life like men. You know, so these were, you know, to us now, it sounds ridiculous, but these were ch- very radical things at the time. Well, especially the question of women, like a woman leaving her family and joining a, a monastic order, having a religious life. That was a very radical thing. I think at it's, the still time. Radical. it's, hard, it's still yeah. very radical. But it's hard for I us to appreciate is, how yeah. radical because the women were literally the possession of their family. Yeah. And yeah. it was like taking someone's property, quote unquote. I hate to use that language, but historically that would be accurate, I think. Yeah, and so we have to understand it in historical context. And it doesn't mean uh, it's used as a defense or to say, like, oh, now we're waving the, you know, woke flag or whatever. It's just saying, like, all he could do was, in that context, do that. And and I think it was so skillful because he didn't comment on the future because he wanted he wanted his, you know, people, I guess, or the people who 
who who realized what he realized, uh, uh, you know, the, the, this nature of reality or Buddha nature, um, and they brought that to its fruition, to be able to enact their wisdom skillfully in however relative reality shifts. Because mm. relative reality never lands somewhere. It's, it's mm. always changing. It's always morphing. Nice. So I think, you know, my point earlier was, was around, it's very tricky to say we know what's actually going to even reduce the suffering. Not even talking absolutely. about eliminating it. Well, absolutely. That's why we need to be scared and very cautious around people with these huge, big plans that they claim will create a utopia. Because historically, that always ends in disaster. Like communism totally. is the great yeah. best example of that. They, they were atheistic, scientific, materialist, rational people who were, they believed they were working towards creating a future utopia. And the result was the deaths of tens of millions of people and all kinds of suffering and oppression and it basically just become this totalitarian power structure. Totally. And, and, and I think, uh, you know, to me, it's just like the shifting of narratives where we see it's just recycled. We see samsara recycle itself again and again and again, and history recycle itself again and again. It just takes on different clothes and different narratives. Hmm. And, and so, um, you know, in, in Vedic astrologers, for instance, like, you know, someone really, really learned in that. They see these patterns in astrology, you know, meaning like they can see the... And astrology, I think, is just talking about a potential, right? Mm. For, for the way the confluence of relative reality comes together based on karma and conditioning. But um, so, so for, for really, like, from a Buddhist perspective, it's like we have to undermine the whole structure within us. And I can't undermine the, the structure in someone else, mm. uh, ultimately. Can I do some... Can I be useful in undermining oppressive and destructive structures uh, and reducing their harm? Definitely. And I think that's where we can put our energy. But like we just pointed out, the problem is like we don't know ultimately what's going to help. But I think right. that shouldn't shackle us either, meaning like like th that's not a good excuse not to do anything. You know what I mean? So it's, it's yeah. a tricky one. It's, it's, a, it's a little bit of a catch-22. No, absolutely. I mean, the only thing that I'm concerned about is just the tendency – for people, especially more politically politically active ones, to want to just tear everything down, and yeah, that's the like, what, like what we just modernism. yeah, it's like you want you want to criticize everything, you want to tear everything down. Everything is oppression and patriarchy and bad and evil. But what are you going to replace it with? And like, because I'm someone who lived for a period of time in India and Nepal, I have so much appreciation for the fact that our post office works, that our roads work, that our <laughs> these mm -hmm. like things in our society work so well. <coughs> And we have so such little appreciation for the abundance and wealth and that we have here. And we're constantly comparing ourselves to people that are richer and complaining. And it's like we, you know, generally speaking, are in a really good place here in America. We should appreciate that. And then we can enact changes based out of a place of appreciation rather than out of this kind of asinine criticism trying to destroy everything mentality. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I just think it's it's part of the upheaval of our conditioning right now that um the, the response to tyranny is, is a deconstructionism. Um, and, and I hope we grow out of it quickly because I, I, I definitely, you know, I'm becoming a little bit pessimistic around if that continues, it, it's just sort of, you see the seeds of aggression just being watered more and more. Yeah. On all sides. Um, on all, that's what I mean on all sides. And I think, um, you know, this isn't to say at all that like I'm, I'm, I'm trying to squash or diminish someone's experience or their expression of their emotions or the way them or their ancestors have been oppressed. Not at all. I, I think, I think, uh, I think it's just, we very much value the expression of emotion more than we value the feeling of emotion. Mm. And, and that has to shift. I mean, both are okay. 
But, but if we're just following the expression without an actual internal shift into more of a healthy stance with our own suffering, I don't think it's going to go in the right direction for anyone, you know, conservative right. or liberal or whatever, and not to make it black and white. There's a lot of people in the middle and a lot of us, you know, I consider myself more liberal, but, but there, you know, I, I do consider myself liberal, but there's, there's, there's ideas of deconstructionism that are happening in the in liberal kind of agendas. I just don't agree with, I don't think yeah. just for the reason you said, it's like, it's not very, it's not well thought out what the plan is here. No, there's a, there's a lack of knowledge of history, a lack of appreciation and, just this, yeah, this this negative attitude that I feel permeating our culture that's just disturbing and unnecessary. And um, yeah, and I think it's coming to a head. I mean, I was really uh, in, in enlivened. Is the right? Word? I don't know. If that's the right. Word. Uh, I was really happy. I, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of like Aziz Ansari. Um, I I don't know what I think of his kind of mishap necessarily. Um, but oh, his, yeah. his, his latest, <laughs> yeah, his latest comedy special. He he, you know, he started the whole comedy special talking about. Um, his Me Too moment, and 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 it was very heartfelt, I think. And then I the first I haven't seen that yet. Oh, watch it! The first fifteen minutes are just like I'm like to me, comedians are the bodhisattvas uh, of, of <laughs> our time, uh, and, and Dave Chappelle as well. I'm a yeah, the new Chappelle uh, one is amazing. It's so well done. Yeah, and, and I'm not saying I like everything he says, or I'm defending everything him and Aziz Ansari say. But Aziz, um, he spends 15 minutes railing against woke culture, and I'm like, nice. thank you, <laughs> you know. And and it's and it's so good and so clear. And he's also not saying it's all bad. He's not saying, you know, because what are we going to do? Challenging something that's violent and destructive, and basically, I mean, we, we can we have to be clear. America is built on indigenous genocide and, and, and slavery. The whole economic system is built on slavery. Anyone who who's read a little bit about history is not going to deny that. No, we're not at all. That's yeah, a terrible, probably, it's a terrible history. I believe we need to have, um, you know, truth and reconciliation process commission, exactly. uh, yeah. restorative justice. I'm, I'm in favor of things like reparations. It's a big conversation. Me so too, we, actually, we as yeah. a nation need to talk about it. And we can, what, I, what I'm trying to say is we can do that from a place of also loving our country, loving this land, loving each other. That's to me, what it's I'm the to land. Say. Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, yeah. I, I wasn't saying a statement against what you're saying, just sort of yeah, adding yeah. To, to my view, um, just being trying to be as clear as possible here on the podcast. But um, yeah, Aziz, I, I feel he, uh, my point was he just, he, he, it's a fair shake at, at understanding where the deconstructionism is going a little nuts. Like his, he, and I don't want to ruin the joke, but he, he, he starts talking about, <laughs> you know, he has brunch with friends and they're getting into all the articles and all the wokeness. And then he's like, you know, I don't think we're going to solve this at brunch guys, you know? And, and, <laughs> and you know, he, he's more making fun of uh, like newly woke white people. That's who he's making fun of. Right. Um, well, often the most ex people with the most extreme voices are actually white people criticizing other white people. Yeah. I call it the woke Olympics. That's yeah. my, my term for it. It's sort of like how, how much woker can I be? And really, really what, what I think we're trying, I can't judge anybody else, but when I've done performative wokeness on Facebook or wherever, which I regret, um, I do believe it was it was a cover to avoid having to look at how my whiteness shows up, as opposed to mm. genuinely meeting it and feeling the suffering of uh, how uh, uh, systemic white supremacy affects all of us mm. and how it dehumanizes all of us, including myself. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so, you know, it doesn't dehumanize us in the same way, but I do believe it does dehumanize us all. Um, but anyways... Um, I guess part bit. of my what I want to speak to is like a positive vision of our understanding of our past and future. So mm. we can for sure white supremacy deserves to be criticized and talked about, but 
there's also like we can't attach i'm just against attaching like a morality to the color of your skin either way yeah totally like if we're going to get to a post-racial society we can't see like if you're if you're if you have a worldview in which everyone who's white is more responsible for i don't know enacting this these systems of oppression i just i just like what about like a five-year-old child like are they more responsible like how do we or what about a super successful i don't know black comedian or actor who's made tens of millions of dollars you know making all these jokes about all this stuff it's like it's not let me try to collect my thoughts i think another way to think about this is some of the extremism we're seeing is that people are very concerned about social justice issues and then they're reducing everything to that. And they're, they're diminishing the complexity of our world. The, like the soul level or the, like the, just the human heart level. Like there, there's a lot of other levels to our reality, but there's this temptation to kind of reduce everything to this set of social justice issues and this ideology and Mm -hmm. seeing things that way. And that's like one part that's important, but it's not the whole, it's not the whole pie. You don't want to totally. And, yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I agree there. And I think you, you hit at one of the points where, where I, I feel I, I actually do feel my work is, is activist work. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't say that a lot publicly, but I guess I just did <laughs> um, in the sense that like, um, I'm not just my, my attempt to, to, to share the Buddhist path with people if, 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 if you know, if that's, that's appropriate in the sense that, that um, I, I don't feel I'm any kind of great teacher. I'm just a practitioner trying to work on myself. And if, if I end up sharing that with someone and that helps them, that's great. But um, to me also, I feel within that is an is a element of like uh, coming back into the heart in an embodied way. And I feel like when, especially when I offer embodiment work um, and, and, and more heart work, work on the, on engaging a fuller heart that's recognizing our interdependence as beings to me, I feel this can be uh, interrupt some of the dominant forces, whatever side yeah. of the political spectrum they come from. No, I think um, that's beautiful. I think that's true. Yeah, so I consider that literally my activist work. And, and well, I think, act- I think activist work doesn't have to only be one thing. There's a lot of different ways we can... Because what is activism yeah. ultimately? We want to see a world that, that we're, we're, everyone has uh, some kind of... Uh, uh, equity, you know, in, in agency and, and happiness, you know, well-being right. and health, you know, and, and that's not, and that's spread out, you know, there's a sense of everyone has access to that. Right? Yeah. Well, I think one of the key ways that, um, you know, Buddhist teachings and practices can really help transform people in our society is that it's not a materialistic ideology. It's not nihilistic. Yeah, exactly. It's not materialist. And oh, so many people today, that are rejecting religion and spirituality are ending up in this, like you said, hedonistic, nihilistic kind of place where everything is relative and you're just kind of grasping after your own pleasure or you, you just, I don't know. I think, I think the Buddhist teachings do offer uh, like a rational, logical way to appreciate something like spirit or interconnection or Buddha nature. Mm. Um, I don't want to get too like woo woo with it because that's not my point, but like, we can we can just we can keep the conversation very logical, rational, and scientific, and we can appreciate the vast mystery of consciousness and of our subjective experience. That mm-hmm. science isn't explaining everything. We can appreciate the fact that a human being could have all the material wealth and comfort in the world and be completely miserable in their subjective experience, and they might even kill themselves, or they might be addicted to drugs. And we see that all the time in the news. And so, I think in that way, we need to have conversations about this. Yeah, like, I agree uh, with you. Yeah, I'm, I'm all, I mean, that's why I'm, I'm, I'm really 
I'm, I'm glad you brought it up because I, I just think we need more dialogue and, and more places for dialogue, even when we disagree. Not, I mean, you and I are generally agreeing, but but I think um, we just need that more and more. And, and, and that takes maturity in that, like, you don't need someone to agree with you in order to have a conversation, nor do you have to have animosity mm. towards them. Right. It's just like a different right. view. And I think, you know, this is where some people will get in. Well, what if they're creating violence or hate in the world? I don't know. I, I think having that an aggressive attitude that creates hate in the world, it doesn't mm. matter the content. It's like, I mean, the content does matter, but because there's different degrees of where that aggression is, is lobbed. Right. Yeah. But um, obviously, but, but aggression is aggression. And I think trying to get at any kind of solution with more aggression is, just, is a really bad idea. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's like an arms race. And so I think extending the benefit of the doubt to people is, a, is actually a really helpful thing to do. And that being said, you don't want to be naive. I think in the past, maybe I've been too generous sometimes, but mm. trying to enact someone else's better nature by giving them the benefit of the doubt, that's a good place to start. Yeah. And I feel like, um, I don't know, for me personally, the less, it's not just about feeling separate and becoming colorblind. Um, I don't think that's really helpful either. But I, I think for me, understanding the less this, less separation between myself and others, and that really, like, I can be in their shoes in, in, easily, in a sense, like, meaning, like, it just takes a condition to change. And then I can experience something really different, uh, be that, you know, more, more suffering or less suffering. And then at the same time, um, I have my own embodied experience that I have to acknowledge and, yeah. and, and how my body shows up consciously and unconsciously. And I, I think that is a help. That's been a helpful tool for me because I think, you know, I do generally think when you're, when you, when, when you are kind of the more dominant voice in a culture and that, that is unfortunately that has become race, uh, uh dependent, I, I believe in the United States, um, especially, there, there is an element where like you can become a little blind to how your body's showing up in the world right. just because you haven't had to look at it. You haven't been, you know, there's, right. there's no reason you needed to or had to. And, and so I, I think it is useful to, it's been useful to me. I'll, I'll just put it that way to kind of like look, step back and it helps me as a teacher a lot. Like, um, I'm like, I'm a, like I said, I'm a big Jewish white dude, you know? So like, <laughs> like I don't think of myself as like a you know, I can get aggressive, but I think of myself as, you know, trying to understand someone trying to be gentle with them but just by the fact that my body's really big mm. sometimes I'm you're, so, you're so a man and yeah there's a lot of yeah yeah, yeah and and, and I'm, I'm quite direct with my speech and stuff like that that's generally how i how i communicate and so it's just recognizing like this other person might be viewing me in a completely different way and and i have to be a little like i can't always be walking on eggshells but i have to be sensitive to that and in, in just that i i respect and appreciate this person in front of me and their differences, be they a woman or, or another man or whatever, or, or the culture or background I come from. So I don't know. I think that has been useful for me without getting too much into the like, uh, too sensitive about it. Because then we can't right. make any decisions or have any action. Right. Well, I think it's a bad sign that these topics are so charged that people are afraid to talk about them. I don't think that's a good direction for us. to. That's not a good road for us to keep going down. Totally. I guess I'm going to yeah. take, I'm going to take a chance. I've never really done this before in the podcast, but there was an op-ed opinion piece in the New York Times, was it, like yesterday? And it's called A Racist Attack Shows How Whiteness Evolves. And um, there was this racist attack at a high school in New Jersey where I think it was two boys uh, used the N-word and racial slurs against four African-American women, black women, 
who were younger than them, and then one of them peed on them. And I think it was partly like film, and so it's this, it was this terrible racist attack. Uh, but part of the twist of it is the two boys who were carrying out the attack are Indian from India, mm. and so this opinion piece is saying that it doesn't matter that they're that they were Indian, that these two boys were actually acting out whiteness, and that this is a very traditional thing. Like, let me see if I can I can even quote it. It says the boys reported racial identity. Instead of asking what the boys' reported racial identity tells us about the nature of the attack, we should see the boys as enacting American whiteness through anti-black assault in a very traditional way. In doing so, the assailants are demonstrating how race is a social construct that people make through their actions. And I just read that and I wanted to talk about it because I think it's, I think it's wrong. I think it's really problematic. I think racism is a huge problem in India. It's a huge problem in China and Japan and other parts of the world. And so I just think this ideology that reduces all racism to whiteness is wrong and i think it's unhelpful and so like for example maybe ra- maybe racism isn't even the right word for it because in india you have the caste system so there's some differences there i'm not saying they're exactly the same but there's this part of human dynamics human nature to have in groups and out groups and this in group out group dynamic and for the in group to be oppressive towards the out group and however that is defined it shows up throughout time and history you know human culture yeah and so if we have this ideological belief that all of this is due to like white European colonialism or all like you have to only white people can be racist. I think that that we're putting on these ideological blinders. We're not looking at the reality of the situation. I mean, like if we look at where slavery still exists in the world, it's places like Saudi Arabia, you know, it's not just a white European colonial problem. I mean, that's not to dismiss that history or to make, you know, whitewash anything or to like, you know, but just to look at the reality, the complex reality of how there's these oppressive dynamics yeah, and cultures much, throughout the world. I have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I don't know how, how much I have to say about that particular, cause I saw that story too. And, and I, oh, when I heard it, I heard the kids were black. They didn't say they were Indian. That's why I was confused. I'm just, but, that's just based on what I read in the, in the New York times. I don't yeah, know. Probably it's getting more accurate reporting now, but the original <laughs> reporting was, Oh, that they were black. That would make it even yeah, more interesting. And I thought, yeah, but maybe, well, there was, there was a story in the news the other day of, uh, a student at a high school called the janitor the n-word several times and then the janitor complained about it and then the janitor was fired because he said the n-word while complaining about it and then it but then it turned out that the person who was calling him the n-word was also black yeah yeah yeah. I, so it wasn't it I wasn't heard. a racist yeah, yeah. using the n-word it was another black person using the n-word and the, and the janitor didn't like being called that but oh, then man, he ended yeah. up getting fired this is where this is where I, I <laughs> so put our, my our society line. is going crazy. It's it's well. This it's is madness. where I put my line. That that's not my business. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Like meaning like obviously I I don't have a, a I'm not African American embodied this life <laughs> at least. Uh, this is not my business. Meaning to to put judgment on that situation. But yeah, I, I hear you. Um, what I was going to say about the other one was this is where I've kind of my foray into. Uh, <laughs> sort of anti-racist education and, and sort of, which I found really useful. And I say anti-racist specifically because it's a movement within um, sort of anti-racism that focuses on, on understanding uh, the systems and the structures yeah. behind uh, what, what, what basically demeans and diminishes all of us. Right. right. I agree with that completely. And, well, and so I like just- that. Part of my point, yeah. Okay, I'll let you finish. Let me finish my point because I'll I'll lose it if I don't finish my point. Um, If it's okay, Um, part of me really likes that. But what I wanted to say was 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 around. So one outlook from that perspective is that 
um, we can't understand un- racism around the world as a universalized system. It does function in similar ways, but the mm. degrees to which it functions and the ways it comes about are different. Okay. And I find that to be a really good lens to look through. Because yes, in India, for instance, the darker skinned you are, um, usually it's like lower caste. Right. Um, there's not as much opportunity. They, so, so there's always those dynamics. And I, I don't, I can't speak to other cultures like in Africa or something, but I'm assuming there's similarities and um, depending probably on the area or tribe or group. But in, in the United States, we have a very specific form of, of racism. And right. Yeah, very specific how it's been systematized and used. And that's actually, a good, that's, a great, like, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah and I, I think that's a valid point from Absolutely. when I heard it. And, and I think, um, you know, f- even so, it's so unique and so uh, uh, insidious that even historically, countries like South Africa came over to study uh, us. We kind of, you know, one of our terrible exports. Yeah, yeah and, and exported our, our form of, of systemic white supremacy in order to enact apartheid. So, so uh, yeah, that's the only thing I would say around that is like, I think it's tricky because, yeah. yeah, and I think I think it is a little messy in that in that article, it sounds like, because they're trying to put a, a very, you know, United States-based uh, systemic racism approach to a situation when, when all the people involved were people of color. And, and I don't know, right. I, I don't have an actual thought on that article yet. I would have to kind of... Yeah, yeah, I'm just, I just thought I would bring it in here. I mean, part of my thing with it is, you know, if you had an... I take your point totally. Like United States is unique in particular, and we have this long history. But if you have immigrants who came over here, and then they're enacting racism, or maybe I guess the language becomes different. They're enacting some kind of oppression or discrimination based off of their culture. You know, so that that can be happening too. So maybe maybe racism in the United States is unique, and we need to work on it here in this country. And there are all these other issues around the world. Personally, I would like to be able to use the word racism to refer to discrimination based on race all around the world and not just limit it to whiteness in America. That's mm-hmm. my personal, that just feels useful and helpful in terms of the language. Um, but at the very uh, least, we can look at this in-group, out-group, you know, hierarchies of oppression that, that are part of human nature and that are con- going to continue to be part of human nature. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 would, I would say, I, you know, I, I, I would aspire to that as well. I, I just think... What I found in, in my conversations on this is just making the distinction is really helpful. Mm. Um, not that it's like the, the fundamental dude is is kind of similar, right? right? Coming from the individual, which is just you know, uh, but but the the way it's systematized is different, and I think that's a that's a useful distinction to make because otherwise, then we're we're not getting clear on and going back to this thing on skillful means of like skillfully how to tackle something that, you know, problem of it in Scandinavia is going to be really different how to tackle it there versus here. Cause I don't know the elements of systemic racism or racism in Scandinavia, or let's say Sweden, for instance, but I'm sure they're having some issues with immigration as more immigrants come there. So it's more like an immigration issue as opposed to here. It's like, we just have, like you already said, we have this deeply unacknowledged uh, 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 oppression and genocide that's happened on this land and, it, and and there's been no reparations or repair of that um, right. that hasn't maybe like vikings and swedish people maybe they need to do some repair i don't know <laughs> I'm, i don't mean to be flippant but you know in the larger scheme of things from a buddhist perspective this is some sort at play and it's just going to take on new clothes and new flavors and it's not not to minimalize or relativize all of it it's just saying we we can look at the small picture and work on that. And as a Buddhist, we're actually trying to work on a bigger picture, which as long as there's 
aversion, ignorance, and clinging, suffering will continue. And, mm. and maybe maybe white people are next, you know, and, and then we're the next group, you know, that could that could happen. And I don't know. To me, I, it's just sort of another function of some of samsara, meaning like it's not like a, you know, whoever it happens to, it's awful. I, I don't have right. any, you know, kind of in that way. I don't think like anyone's any one group is is less worthy of deserving to not have suffering. I guess you know I mean? yeah. I guess part of my point here that I'm trying to say is. Yeah, I mean, from the Buddhist language, we can talk about samsara and the causes of suffering. And just from a more like psychological or evolutionary point of view, uh, we have evolved with this tendency to organize ourselves into groups and discriminate against people that aren't in our group or team or Mm -hmm. tribe. And we have to work to overcome these kind of urges, which I think have a biological basis. You know, we have to like work to evolve, to develop ourselves, to not, to not be driven by those programs that are kind of part of our DNA to some degree. Yeah, 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 I think that's a good point. Yeah, I just, anyway, wanted to bring up some of this stuff. I know it's a big issue and hopefully I'll have more, I am planning to have more podcast guests around, podcast conversations around some of these topics in the future. Yeah, I would, I would just say like, I mean, it'd be really wonderful. To, I mean, I don't want to tell you what guests to have, but to have people of color on to talk about this. Yeah, yeah you know, I have, I have two so far and I'm, I'm hoping to have more. Yeah, because um, I, mean, I love to talk about this just because it's in, it's something I've been really interested in, especially in the last five years of, of also just unpacking my body and how it shows up in the United States and recognizing like, I can't just ignore that. Like I do have to look at that. And uh, that's been really helpful. And then it's also been helpful to kind of navigate with the woke Olympics kind of what's happening. <laughs> and I'm not saying that also like, I do mean it kind of like, it is a little bit funny, meant to be funny, but also I don't mean in a derogatory way where like some of that's really good. Like some shifts have been right. made. No, absolutely. Like, like, like same with the me too movement. Like, like a lot of shifts have been made, like, yeah, you know, and it sees as special. He acknowledges that he said, he acknowledges like, he's really happy that because of his situation, more men are thinking about how they're treating women on dates, you know, yeah. first dates. And like, and I thought, wow, that's really beautiful thing to say. Like, you know, that would be my hope for these things too, that they, they just shift things a little bit more in a direction that, that creates less suffering for people. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's good and helpful to acknowledge that it's a human problem rather than just the, a particular time and place and culture. I mean, that has that component too. Totally. But by yeah. kind of, by looking at the, the whole globe and how these issues exist, it, it gives us, it gives me more a sense of, uh, it just feels more true. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. Anyway, um, I guess another. <laughs> I mean, I know we're we're going through a lot here, and see how we're much time gonna, we have. But <laughs> we're just gonna we're gonna we're gonna work out all the all the problems in one, <laughs> in one podcast. <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> no, we can at least raise a bunch of questions. Yeah, to me, I'm just I'm really interested. I mean, to me, this is really fun because I guess, I, I, I just like talking and, and exploring this and inquiring into it. Anyway. Yeah. Challenging also my beliefs around it. You know? Yeah. Just reflecting on my own life and my own experience that I can talk about is that going to India and being there for five months, and then I was in Nepal for about a year. It, it just opened up my eyes to how uh, oppression and oppression based on race and caste and class, like how can I, I don't know, I just saw that in a different way. And so then when I came back to this country, it's like, yeah, we have problems too, of course. Um, but I, I'm no longer able to idealize, idolize, you know, the quote unquote other or the East or imagine that the world will be perfect. You know, that everything, everything is the fault of America. Like it, it just seems tied into this idea of 
kind of like original sin almost or like this puritanical like shaming of ourselves that mm. I just don't think is is that helpful after a while. It's like I agree with that. we're like yeah. self-flagellating ourselves and so let's let's actually make things better and stop beating ourselves up. Like yeah, some, I agree some with version that. Of that. Agree with yeah. Yeah. And to me, I mean, just as, as sort of in the work I do, I, I just look at these as uh, on base levels of like, you know, like you already stated, like driven by very base human emotions and, and states of fear and hope and expectation. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, it's just how it repeats itself in different forms. Yeah. 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 It just keeps going and going. Well, I'm going to switch gears a little bit with what time we have left. Like there's been, so many scandals in the Buddhist world. Since you're a Buddhist teacher, <laughs> I wanted to bring I wanted to bring that up, and um, talking about tearing down our idols and <laughs> seeing things realistically, it's like, you know, wherever humans gather and create institutions, there are problems. And I mean, we see it in anywhere we look now. Um, like Catholicism, obviously, has a lot of issues with abuse, for example. But unfortunately, like the Buddhist groups and communities also have a lot of issues with abuse and. Um, one of the like kind of disturbing things about the Tibetan Buddhist world is it's there's all these teachers and they kind of, I don't know, endorse each other. So it kind of creates this ecosystem of, Oh, there's this really wonderful, great enlightened being. And he wrote the preface for this other person's book. So that person is a really great, wonderful teacher too. And there's all these like kind of endorsements. I mean, like the big example is like, like uh, Sogyal Lokar or Sogyal Rinpoche as he used to be called is now kind of this disgraced teacher, but he was, his center in France was visited by the Dalai Lama like multiple times and the Dalai Lama like wrote the preface, preface to his book. And so, I don't know, I'm just kind of raising this question of the role or responsibility because the standard response that I've heard a lot of Tibetan Buddhist teachers give is like, you should examine your teacher very carefully and before you commit to them. And so they're kind of putting the onus on the students but it just seems that there's also responsibility on these these teachers that kind of like look at each other a little bit more carefully, and if they see something wrong, to speak to it. Yeah, and this, you know, I was laughing because earlier, not to diminish the the gr- gravity of this conversation, but because we're going to try to have it in ten minutes, is why I was laughing. Yeah, I'm just <laughs> then, raising the question. I don't know. <laughs> then of our call, yeah, we might have to uh, continue it. But yeah. Um, to me, this is a huge issue uh, with, with obviously a lot of nuance uh, to discuss. The first thing I would just say around what you were just describing is um, it really is a different cultural perspective. Uh, mm. I, I've grown to learn. I, I really don't understand Tibetan culture that much still after 20 years. I mean, I didn't grow up in it. Um, I live with some of my lamas who are Tibetan monks for, for years and, you know, uh, lived as a Tibetan Buddhist monk uh, in the or American monk in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, and you know, in, in Asia, like you know, spent time in Nepal and India. But it still confounds me a lot of the dynamics because it's, it's just a very different culture than ours. So, with that said, um, you know, then it even gets more complex because we're talking. It's a culture that that is a culture that um, that's been holding uh, the Buddha Dharma. So there's you know there's there's elements of that culture that are are that are Dharma. And there's elements of that culture that aren't. And it's hmm. sometimes really hard to f- figure out what's what. Right. It's, it's not always so clear. Um, and so I don't, you know, I just want to put that out there that that really trying to un- understand this from our perspective, it's really hard. Hmm. And so anyone who thinks they figured it out from their perspective, uh, you know, email me. Like, you, you know, <laughs> we're, we're welcome to have a conversation. Just, just meaning like, 
it's like me trying to comment on, you know, Beijing food culture or something like that. I don't know. I'm not, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. again, we uh. need something to go off of to make decisions about things. But, but all I'm saying is we shouldn't assume the worst always. We, we have to be a little bit generous. In yeah. Like, at least learning that. about what something is. So just as an example, because I think you brought up a specific thing I, I could talk on. Um, beings or teachers like the Dalai Lama, again, I'm just going to be generous with him. Uh, he's one of my teachers. I was ordained by him. I don't know mm. him personally. You know, I met him one time sure. briefly. That was it. But just seeing him as a teacher in his capacity and seeing his life work, there's there's some I can deduce some things about him. And generally, uh, uh, for a, a lama who's holding a lineage, a teacher who's holding a lineage, and they're 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 given the responsibility of like disseminating this and making sure it continues to exist in a healthy form for beings to become awakened. Um, they're going to do things, they're going to do whatever they can do to support the Dharma. And that might look funny to us sometimes where they might be like endorsing. Now the Dalai Lama didn't endorse him uh, as like, uh, uh, I think when all the scandals became public, right? After it all became public, he said that he had shamed himself and, and criticized him a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, and also, uh, you know, the Dalai Lama, I got a lot of questions about the Dalai Lama after the, some of these scandals broke recently where people are like, why doesn't he do anything? And I'm like, because Tibetan Buddhism is not the Catholic Church. He's not the Pope. Like, he right. has no control over right. anyone else. Like, even in his own lineage, the Galupa tradition, he's not the head of the Galupa tradition. A lot of people don't understand that. The Gandan Tripa is. So, which is a title that moves to a different, you know, person every four years or whatever. So, anyways... Yeah. Um, he, he doesn't, all he can do is like privately shame them and, and or, or privately talk to them and try to convince them, you know, uh, uh, to stop doing harm. Or now he's, he's gone and he's gone about by saying it publicly, like against some teachers. Yeah. Well, so you can just read those the, articles, but let me just finish my statement yeah. really quick. So then he's, <clears throat> but my point really is like, culturally, they want to support the Dharma. Like, so there's one example of this. There's a great teacher, Nushal Ken Rinpoche. Uh, who's the teacher of some of my teachers. He's, he's passed away now. There's a story where some, um, uh, he was in Bhutan and some Bhutanese teachers, lamas came to him and said, oh, there's all these fake teachers going around. You know, uh, um, they're not really qualified to teach Buddhism, but they're just going around teaching and talking about, you know, things. And, and Nushokan, he didn't say anything bad. He just asked the question. He said, well, are they talking about the, the the three jewels the buddha dharma and sangha mm, nice. and, and and they said oh yeah they they do talk about the three jewels and he said oh great so it's like you know he he made it a point like it, it's like sometimes we can't always like hope for the best thing sometimes like there there is like something just has a function in itself and it can have some benefit now here's where the discussion comes where's the line you draw right and some, when it's like this person should not have be in a power role anymore right, right? Yeah, and I'm not commenting on Sogil Rinpoche, by the way. I'm just saying a general statement. Yeah, no, that's a good general. That's the that's the big question because you can hear about allegations or insinuations and then you can question a teacher and then you can think, well, maybe I wasn't there. I'm not their student. Maybe that maybe they were actually acting in a skillful way out of compassion and it just sounds weird from the outside. That's possible. Or it could be that they're abusing their power and it would be if you're in a position of authority speaking out on that would be the ethical thing to do. So there's a lot of gray area and a lot of questions and yeah. Yeah. And some of it's, uh, you know, from our culture perspective is not so gray. Um, 
you know, that's why I said this is a complex conversation because uh, Tibetans mm-hmm. also have a, a thing in the culture where you, you know, you, you don't lose face. There's like a public persona that you have. And sometimes that fosters a lot of uh, misconduct, right? Because you can privately not be ethical, but publicly look like that. Mm. And um, what I heard recently too was a story that like, it's not that people didn't care about this in Tibetan culture, but for instance, if you, have, you typically have a monastery or a place of practice where there's many different teachers, there's not just one. So it's not centralized around one person. And yeah, so, that's a good point. Yeah, and to me, that's that, that's more how it's supposed to be practiced. Right. And and so if like let's say there's just you know a, a family and they they go to it's they're they're living in a village near a monastery, one of the teachers starts um, sexually assaulting young girls in the village or something like that, and it becomes known that that's happening. Um, they don't have a culture of of culture of calling that out so much, but they do have a culture where they pay respect like. Because of the person's title, they pay respect physically or verbally, but they don't go to that t- to person for teaching or advice anymore. Mm. And everybody knows it. Oh, that's interesting. And, and so it's like they just have a different way to handle that. And I'm not saying that's better or worse. I'm just just stating some of the differences. And, yeah. and, and that could be – each situation could be different. I also want to universalize that and say every situation in abuse. A lot of times abuse was called out. And also women practitioners, you know – we're fierce, some of them, and they wouldn't put up with that stuff. So, yeah, but it just depends. So it's it's you know we're talking about large cultures and systems, you know. Yeah, well, part of what I hear you saying is the the dharma is a bigger thing than the individual, and so in that culture, an individual teacher could be flawed, but they didn't. They would still see the value in the quote unquote dharma, and they could have other teachers around. And the situation here, or the part of the danger, part of the the situation is that when everything is invested in this one figure, this guru-like figure who's projected upon to be perfect. And then when he gets torn down and all these scandals come out, then you like, what's the point of this is all bullshit. Why did I waste my life? Why did I waste my time? And that's so painful. And, and I think unnecessary to some degree. I mean, it's good to reflect and be honest with yourself, but also good to appreciate if you personally experienced value in doing meditation, then, then you have that. No one can take that away from you. It doesn't matter what someone else does. Exactly. And this is where the real honestly like this is where we're having some some cultural uh what do you call it when two cultural views are meeting they're conflicting in the sense that having a teacher doesn't mean you have to obey them 100 percent. that's not at all what the teaching says mm. they're just a mirror mostly we're just getting the teaching through them right and, and actually you know and and then it's like i do think i mean the dalai lama is very clear about this if someone's not ethically holding their responsibility as a teacher up they should be removed. I mean, it's, he, he said it. It's not, right. I, I, don't, I just don't think there should be a lot of qualms about that. But the problem is like, like you said, there's this de- de- deconstructionism that wants to remove them and then disprove all the whole lineage based right. on that. Right, and just it's like, throw everything out. And, yeah. yeah, it's like, dude, can't, you know, people are flawed, like including people who make up organizations and systems. Mm-hmm. They'll continue to be. And, and, you know, I think it's just like, like I said, where's the line of how much flaw are we going to take within a power role? Right. And, and, and I think that's becoming more clear. And I'm really glad we're having discussions about that. Um, it's important. And, and definitely, like, I did want to say <clears throat> one quick thing because you raised the point earlier. It's not just the student checking the teacher. Actually, the, the teacher has way more responsibility than the student mm. uh, in the sense that the teacher also checks the student and the teacher is is uh, 
ethically and morally so much more uh, in, in the, uh, uh, what do you call it? Mm. There's so much more heaviness on them. Mm. Now, again, that heaviness usually comes through teachings on karma cause and effect. And, and, and I think there is a point there where maybe we also have to have some ways organizationally, there's, there's some accountability, right? More accountability. Yeah. And I think that's that's a Western value that that I think would could be good, right? Yeah, there's some development um, that's going to happen hopefully with this. And yeah, because it's just say, oh well, karma will get you at some point. Karma's going to get that guy. It's not enough, some you know, because like, what it about now? Satisfy us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What about now? Like, what about the harm this person is doing now? Right. Yeah. So, so it's a really tricky thing. And like I said, I, I'd love to continue <laughs> it, because I, I feel like we're just touching the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. And, you know, one, one, one yeah. thing in conversations these days that's tough is like especially these issues is what I don't, what we don't say also incriminates us. Mm. And so what's tricky is like, I have so much to say about this, including the actual practice of working with a teacher, mm. uh, which is a profound practice in Buddhism, which it's, which isn't worship and it's not blind devotion. Mm. Um, it's actually, it's a, it's a, it's a relationship like any other relationship that we build skillfully based on trust and appreciation. And, yeah. and actual genuine love and appreciation for each other. Like, no, I love my teachers. Great. Yeah. They're beautiful human beings. Th do they make mistakes? Sure. I actually like, I I'm fine with it. I mean, they don't make mistakes. Like, you know, I don't think any of them have sexually assaulted people, fortunately. Right. But, um, you know, do they, are they a little cross sometimes? <clears throat> sure. And to me, that shows that they're a human being. Like, you know, and, and, and do, they, do they act skillfully when they do that? Yes, they apologize or do whatever they need. So, so I think there has to be room for, for some of this where we're, I think the the puritanical ideas, we're often looking for that perfect person right. and we're not going to find that. It's just right. not possible. And so it, it, that's what I meant by the line. Collectively, we have to have some kind of line where it's like, when you cross this ethical boundary, that's not okay to be in right. a power role and do that anymore. But I think because of our, our initial impetus for this conversation, and it's like, like everybody's making their own line for that. Right, where is the line? Yeah, yeah, because because it's like, oh, that person, you know, you see, I'm saying like, because because of this idea, we can all have our own truth. Right. And, yeah, and we have to have some consensus around it. Relative truth is actually just consensus. We need to have consensus consensus around ethics. Yeah, I really agree exactly. with that. It's really real big yeah. problem that we're facing. It's it's, it's it's really big. Really appreciate everything you just shared about the teacher and the role and the relationship it's a, a relationship I, I like that oh yeah it's not unlike uh, developing a friendship or a romantic relationship they're not my buddy they're not my partner in a romantic way uh but they're my teacher it's probably the most intimate relationship i've ever had with someone oh well but it's weird because i don't see them very often <laughs> so it's <laughs> yeah. like an intimate relationship that i see them you know a couple times a year and 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 i don't know i've just learned wow this person really continuously shows up for me and mm. and they don't do everything I like. They make definitely. I, I'm challenged a lot of the times, but I feel that challenge has helped me to grow. And yeah. And again, I know I'm just want to acknowledge that's not everyone's experience, right. and and not everyone has had. I've had trouble with teachers too, so I'm I'm not saying it's all rosy. Um, but through that challenge, I, I think the tradition and, and the power of working with a, a, a Buddhist teacher uh, comes about. You know. Yeah. yeah, no, I really appreciate hearing that. I mean, it kind of makes me think like if you go on Google and search about this, there's so many postings and stories of people who have been abused and had negative experiences. And it's, it feels really good to hear it like a genuine, honest reflection of um, how it's a practice, it's a relationship, how it's not 
this idea of perfectionism, you know, no, but, and, and yeah, but it's been something wanna... positive for you. It's, it's, yeah, it's just, it's very human. It's been extremely positive. And at the same time, like a, a teacher is there to help us grow our discernment, uh, not, not, not to give it away. Mm. Um, and I think, and with that, sometimes things do go wrong. And it's like, we, we exerted a lot of discernment. We exerted a lot of skepticism and still, you know, the teacher came on to us or something like that. So I'm not defending that at all. Like that happens. And I'm really sorry that happened to you. If anyone's mm. listening to this, yeah. like I genuinely am. And yeah. I don't want to paint my picture as like, Oh, there's something wrong with you. Cause you didn't, you know what I'm saying? Like, no, yeah. No, like things happen to us that we didn't, you know, we didn't do anything to deserve. Yeah. It's and, not your fault if that happens to you. And exactly. uh, it makes sense. It makes sense that you'd be skeptical and not want to be in a teacher student relationship. That makes sense too. So. Yeah. And so I think a lot of healing has to happen around this and it, and it is that bridge that we're currently working on, which is like, you know, cause our, our, as you pointed out earlier, uh, culturally these days, we like to build people up and then tear them down because right. we're kind of anti-hero. Right. Um, and it's part of our cathart It's part of our, weird pattern of how we think we're going to grow <laughs> and i'm not i don't want to universalize that or generalize that but but it is a phenomena where we love the teardown man you right, know right. we love it we love it way more than pointing out success stories or the beautiful teachers out there or the beautiful um movie stars like mm. the ones who 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 do amazing work like humanitarian work and kind of stay under the mm. radar and sometimes those news stories get out there but um but right. generally we we do have a negativity bias so we fixate on the negative yeah yeah so it comes up in this area too and that's what i'm a little bit reticent for because i just like to see some people publishing stories of like their relationship with their teachers who were really ethical and yeah. really did benefit their lives and 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 that doesn't have to diminish the other ones it's just it's like saying hey there's like there's all kinds of things happening this is a big world yeah, you know, and it doesn't mean the whole system is flawed. Like, I've heard so much anti-guru stuff lately. I'm just like, wow. Oh it's yeah, really, it's kind of sad because I think it's a lack of understanding what the relationship is and what it's used for. You know. Yeah, I really appreciate hearing your perspective, and there's a ton of it out there. And uh, you know, I think part of it is someone could be very invested and involved in a community with a teacher, and then they can grow and develop, and then they want to differentiate. And I think that can be helpful. Exactly. But sometimes what happens is they differentiate, move away, and then they want to talk a lot of shit about what they're leaving. And sometimes that's for good reason, but sometimes I think it's, it is this cultural dynamic of tearing down our teachers. And uh, it's kind of like this rebellion. I don't know. I think in other cultures, they didn't have this in the same way. Yeah. It is an element of, of postmodernism that I would say it's like a little bit leaning more towards the unhealthy forms. Yeah. Meaning well, I think there's healthy and unhealthy. And, and I think, uh, yeah, this right. is kind of part of that deconstructionism. Like we're trying to find ourselves via the via the de deconstructionism, which isn't our fault. But I think it's it's a it's a it's an element coming out of hyper individualistic hedonistic right. nihilism. Yeah, right. Yeah, super individualistic. Well, I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, it's been great having you on again. <laughs> yeah, I feel like we <laughs> end where we're like, oh, we end in the middle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Even though it's been like an hour and a half. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> thank I you so you. much. Yeah, I really appreciate you too. And I love having these conversations and I hope, uh, yeah, we could have more. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> Thanks, Julian. Thanks. If you found this podcast valuable, there are many ways that you can support it. You can blog about it, post about it on your social media accounts and share it with friends. You can visit our Patreon page, patreon.com backslash a state of mind. 
And you can leave us a review in your favorite podcast listening app. For episode notes and more information and links, please visit estateofmindplay.com. And to learn more about my work as a therapist, meditation teacher, and coach, visit julianocean.us. Thanks so much, and I will see you here next time.